Thank you guys for joining me today in the Boston QZ, where we're going to discuss The Last of Us, the TV show version, but also I'm sure we're going to reference the game. And that's the first thing I want to talk about. But first, I want to introduce my esteemed guest today, Matt Russell, who you may know from Colossus, his new Making Media podcast. He's done business breakdowns episodes and probably other things I don't know about. Hi, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. My next guest, known as Tinker Thinking Online, you can find his writings at tinkerthinking.com. Go check it out. Go buy his books. Follow him on Twitter. It's great stuff. Thanks for joining me, man. Cheers. So I was just loving this show and I started writing about it on Twitter and started noticing other people, you know, posting about it on Twitter or DMing me about it. I figured I'd make a little Avengers kind of crowd of Last of Us fans to discuss it. So the first thing I'd like to do is kind of go around the horn and talk about what we knew about the game maybe before the show and our kind of general thoughts about it. I'll start with this. So I love the game and weirdly enough, I never played it. But back before I had kids, I could actually like go on Twitch and on YouTube and watch other people play video games. A guy I loved, his nickname was Day9 and he used to do a bunch of StarCraft analysis and gameplay and stuff. And once in a while he would play some other game, right? And so he played The Last of Us. I thought, oh, I'll just check it out, see what it is. And I ended up watching his playthrough of the whole game on YouTube from beginning to end. And that's how I experienced it. And I loved it as a kind of a media franchise that in my head was kind of up there with some of my favorite movies. And the more time passed, the more I was afraid that it would age badly. In my head, I saw certain scenes and once in a while I'd go on YouTube to watch that scene and it's like, oh, okay, the graphics are aging, right? And so at some point in the future, it's going to be hard to get through that and the actual story. And so it was cool when they remastered it and all that, but I was afraid it would kind of age badly. So when they announced the show, I figured that would be kind of like the canon version that doesn't age too much, right? Because reality film through a camera kind of plays the same. Love that they got Neil Druckmann, who at the game studio co-wrote the game and co-created it. I love that they got Craig Mason, who did the great Chernobyl, which works really, really well as a drama, right? So it's 100% scientifically accurate, but as a drama, it's one of my favorites. And clearly, these guys, like, they have great chemistry. They love the source material. Lots of shots from the TV shows are, like, shot for shot what's in the game. I love that they got many of the voice actors from the game. They didn't just do the voices. They actually had motion capture suits, and the actors who played Joel and Ellie, they actually did all of the scenes. And they found roles for them in the show. Like, game Joel is Troy Baker, and he plays the main henchman of David the Cannibal, right? The guy who gets the cleaver in the neck. So that's actually Joel. Meryl Dandridge, she plays Marlene, and she's the only one who plays the same character in both the show and the game. Game Tommy is Jeffrey Pierce. He plays Perry. That's the bearded guy who was the main henchman of Kathleen in the city where Fedra was overthrown. And the best for last is Ashley Johnson, who plays Ellie. In the show, she plays Ellie's mother, right? So the OG Ellie gives birth to the new Ellie, and that symbolism of that is so great. That kind of blew my mind when I found out about it because I thought they only picked an actress that looked like Bella Ramsey, because they look the same. And then it's actually the voice actor for Ellie. So anyway, I'm going to try to keep some for later. So the last thing I want to mention is that almost every change that they made from the game to the show, I think were good changes. And they made the TV show better because some stuff works as a game and not quite on TV, right? So we can discuss that as we go through the episodes. But that's kind of like my intro. What about you guys? So I did not play the game, which made it really interesting for me. It was completely new material. And what you just mentioned there in terms of, I would reference those as somewhat Easter eggs, something for the OG fans that 
did not have any impact on me. And it's really interesting to hear that because I've been trying to understand a little bit better about how Marvel has done this so well. And I don't think it's just like there's this huge franchise boom with superheroes and they just happen to be sitting right in the middle of it. I think Kevin Feige has actually been a mastermind in terms of turning that whole franchise and all of the characters around it into much more powerful and valuable things that you can monetize, not just for the existing fans, but for new fans, like putting myself in that category. And it's by using, he said this before, when you have Easter eggs, they can't really interrupt the content for somebody who's new and watching it for the first time. They shouldn't need a glossary for watching any new material. I certainly didn't hear what attracted me to this show was the showrunner being the same showrunner as Chernobyl. And I definitely like prestige TV, but I actually have like a really short leash for whatever reason. My wife isn't a big TV watcher, so it needs to clear a high hurdle because I'm going to be watching it late at night and by myself. And I really need to be into it. And after two episodes, I was definitely into it. After the third episode, I was hooked. And my main takeaways from this are one, pandemic shows, pandemic content hits a little different nowadays. There was something about that initial spread and contagion where it was the first time I was watching it post-COVID and saying to myself, "Uh, yeah, there's a little bit more reality to this now and it stings a little bit more. I love that the IP was so adaptable. And all I kept thinking to myself is, I don't know when I stopped playing games exactly, but the games that I played definitely didn't feel like they were as well scripted or there was as deep of a story as there was here. And every time I would hear someone saying like, oh, they really stuck to the storyline. I'm like, how the hell was this a storyline in a video game? Because I was playing like Toe Jam and Earl and Mario Brothers. And let me just tell you, like the depth of the storylines there weren't as strong. So it just came together really masterfully. And for somebody who's coming from like totally outside of this world, it all worked very nicely. I love it. And I love that you didn't play the game. So as we go through, there's sometimes I want your perspective, right? Because I knew what was coming a certain of the big like reveals or twists, but I had to imagine that for someone who didn't know, it must have hit very differently. How about you, Tinker? I was in the same boat. I didn't play the game at all. I didn't even know about the game and just started watching the show. But as you were both talking, it occurred to me that playing a video game is a bit like writing a short story in some regard and that there has to be enough flexibility in the world of the video game in order to make it interesting. But if you have like too much flexibility, it can actually be super boring. You can suffer from the paradox of just having too much choice. So there has to be this balance between giving some direction, but enough freedom so that a player has enough agency that it's actually fun as opposed to just a mouse in a maze that has no dead ends kind of thing. I was thinking about that as I was watching the show and I did have the same thought where like, how can this be so much like a video game? Because like episode three, for example, which is just a masterpiece episode, how does that translate into gameplay? Like that's basically a montage over the course of 20 years. And it's really about the depth of this relationship between these two men and it's like this is a phenomenal piece of television but which one would i be if i were playing the game of this episode i don't i'm not even sure how that would work but that's actually a question for you liberty was episode three in the game in any respect or were they just like side characters that they developed more fully for the show do you know that's a great point and that's part of my notes right because i hadn't seen the game in like over a decade. So I had to go back on YouTube and rewatch parts of it to be sure. And 
episode 3 is a great example of something that wasn't in the game, as in the show, that they expanded on, right? Because in the show, they allow you to move around perspective. So you see people in the 70s talking about it, you see in Jakarta, right, when the outbreak, and in the game, you stick more to Joel's and Elliot's point of view. That's the difference. In the show, in the game, I mean, you get in there and you see someone who hung themselves. So yes, who's that? And then Frank or Bill says, oh, that was my partner, right? There's a lot of backstory that's kind of hinted at. And in the show, they kind of decided, okay, like, what's this backstory? What, what are the details? And then they expanded on that. In the game, a lot of the world is you're kind of like looking around for stuff to help you survive. And then you rummage through a room and then you find a letter that people wrote around the time of the infection. Like you get a lot of backstory that way by finding pieces of it around and you can piece what happened. I think it's great that they decided to have this more, uh, not omniscient, but this perspective that can move around in the show. And I'll have a lot more to say when we get to episode three, but I think that was a great addition because it adds tons of depth and it's kind of like a central thesis of the show, right? About you have to find a reason to survive in these conditions, the kind of stuff that love will make you do for those that you love. And this whole, like, some people are protectors and that's their mission in life and all that kind of stuff. That's a, a huge part of the show. It seems there's another part of the formula here that just occurred to me while you're talking that with a video game, a large component of it has to be that it's a puzzle that the user has to solve in order to be captivating. But when you're telling a story or writing a story or a great piece of television for a mystery there's a component where you can incorporate some part of riddle or puzzle into the story to help create captivation, but that's not necessarily always required. I think episode three is a great example where you're kind of experiencing this great story, but there's not necessarily anything to figure out. Whereas in a game, you're talking about like you have to open drawers and you have to find certain items to unlock keys and whatnot in order to progress in the game. That's maybe very necessary for a video game and not so much for a TV show. As I was watching the show, I was kind of thinking about how, as a video game, that aspect of it needing to captivate a user actually gets in the way of storytelling in this different medium. But at the same time, it's still kind of incredible how well it translated regardless. And at the time, I think the game was considered one of the most cinematic games so far, right? And that was kind of the innovation you still had some mechanics where like you're okay you're protecting Ellie and you sneak around and you try not to get eaten by clickers and infected or raiders that's the more traditional part of it but they had these great cutscenes that were very similar to the show in many ways and some are shot for shot exactly the same right they reproduce like the poster on the wall and this and that and like the clothes that they wear everything has been reproduced greatly and that part was super cinematic in the game so that was too hard to adapt the big changes from the game is in the game, you kill a lot more infected and you kill a lot more raiders all the time. And that's part of like, you need something to do. But in a game world, as the player, you kind of have a different suspension of disbelief than in a TV show. If on TV, you saw Joel kill like 50 people just to get somewhere, it wouldn't hit the same, right? When he has to do certain things later, or if you have to kill lots of infected. Well, in the game, if you die and you respawn and you die and you respawn, and you can do that a whole bunch of times. In the show, like you can't do that, right? So you have to keep the level of menace that the infected have. So there's a lot fewer of them. And when they show them on the show, they're basically terrifying. You almost die every time one is shown. In the game, you'll kill, I don't know, like dozens and dozens of them, right? But that's one of the big differences where it feels just very, very different. And they couldn't have adapted too directly. 
there's two sides of it. There's the active entertainment where you're playing the video game, you have control over the world. And then there's the passive entertainment where you're following this storyline as a viewer. And they really seem to thread that needle well, where I think to your point, you can't have too much story development in a video game because you're sitting there saying, well, I want to watch the cinematic scene, but yeah, I want to fast forward through it and get back to playing my game and discovering new things. Whereas in television, you're stuck there, you're watching and you want to be entertained for every side of things. So I do think it's kind of like an interesting point and why I think historically it's been hard to adapt video game material into successful IP in the entertainment world, but they did it really well here. Yeah, I can't think of anything that comes close as a game that's been adapted for another medium. You didn't like Doom with The Rock? (laughs) I haven't even seen that one, and I'm like still playing Doom. You don't need to. It gives me an idea for an insane business model where you have a video game where you don't respawn at all. You buy the game, and if you die, the game is over. Imagine how much differently you'd approach that game where you hear from your friends, like, you got to be really careful because if you die, it's like over. It's like real life. That's like the arcades, right? You bring it back to the way old school. You know, you got to put another quarter in the yeah, machine. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. <laughs> you got to rebuy the game every time you die. <laughs> I think there's a mode in The Last of Us, actually, which is like the super, super hard mode where you can't save. If you die, that's it. And that must make you play very, very differently. You don't have to buy the game again, but some parts are hard enough. And that's the fun thing about the gameplay too, is like, you can just run around and bash everybody in your way, or you can sneak around and do these sneak attacks or avoid conflict. So you can play it basically the way you want to play it. But I want to move on to episode one, because I have a question for you guys. When I first saw the game, the game opens kind of like the show. You don't start as Joel or as Ellie, you start as Sarah, Joel's daughter. In the game, your character, like you wake up in your bedroom at night and you're this, I don't know, 14-year-old girl, or I don't remember how old Sarah is in the game. And you're like, something woke you up. And so you go downstairs and you're looking for your dad and you go to the neighbor and the neighbor lady is acting weird. And so you play as Sarah. And then all, all hell breaks loose like in the show, right? And people start running around, explosions, stuff is on fire. And you're still Sarah and you're in the pickup truck as Sarah in the backseat looking around through the windows. And you see like all kinds of mayhem and you die as Sarah in Joel's harm, right? And then after that, you start playing as Joel. And that was mind-blowing at the time, right? Games don't do that. The main character doesn't die and the misdirection of it was great. So I'm curious if it hit you in the show kind of the way it did for me in the game back then. I will say, seeing the cover art where you see Ellie and Joel, Sarah is not there. So I did have questions over what happened. I thought it might be a case where she was nowhere to be found, she was lost, and they were going to be on this mission to find her. So I wasn't sure exactly what I was getting into there. But I will say, when she died at the end of the episode, it was like, oh, wait, my expectation was not that she was going to be gone. My expectation was going to be something else in between. And the character development they had there was obviously important and relevant, and they focused so much on her in that early part. So I think that makes sense now, hearing that in relation to the game. But it was definitely, I would say, something where I knew she was not going to be the main character of the show, just from seeing the visuals of Joel and Ellie all over the screen. You're too media savvy. (laughs) (laughs) Look at the poster. I had similar suspicions. One thing is that the Sarah character is just 100% likable. They do everything in that episode to just try and make you fall in love with her as fast and efficiently as possible. Not necessarily a dead giveaway, but it's like, all right, I feel like the setup for the fall coming here. 
I'm not the media savvy one here. It sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like somebody has some experience. Yeah, someone is writing those stories. <laughs> yeah, writing stories, I think, maybe gives you a, like a little bit of a sixth sense. Even when I'm writing a story, I don't necessarily know where it's going to go. It's a bit like playing a video game, kind of what I was talking about earlier. The best stories that I've written are a lot like reading in that I'm getting to a certain point in the story and then I'm like, oh, this is where it's supposed to go. And it's just a story algorithm that's been developed over the course of ingesting enough stories and trying to reproduce them. And most of the surprise endings in the stories that I've done where there's like a twist at the end, I didn't plan it. It just arose. I was like, oh, this is how it fits together. So I think there's a bit of a sense there when I'm watching a show like this. I'm very sensitive to how my emotions are being tweaked in certain ways to create a certain effect later. So with Sarah, it's like something not good is probably going to happen to this incredibly adorable, sweet, sort of perfect young teenage girl. And lo and behold, overall, though, I have to say episode one is absolutely phenomenal. And one thing that I just want to point out for episode one, why I think that is because Sarah dies. And that is just a cliche place to end the episode where it's like this disastrous, emotional, almost cliffhanger kind of thing. But the episode keeps going. And then usually I feel like in most TV, they would wait for the second episode to pick up there where it would start with like 20 years later kind of thing. But it just kept going, which was ultra satisfying for me. It's like, if she died, it's like, oh, I got to wait like a week to see what the next five minutes are or what happens. It kind of felt like episode one just kept going in that sort of a Lord of the Rings kind of way where it just kept ending over and over. But it was far more satisfying in this respect because of the beginning. It's like, I just wanted to keep going. I'm invested now and I want to see what happens. So that aspect of it, I thought episode one, two and three together were really, really strong in terms of establishing an arc for the entire show. The amount of emotional draw in that's created by just those three episodes, I thought was absolutely phenomenal. There's action, you get emotionally attached, it does develop that story. And then you get that super deep character study in episode three. So I like to think of those first three episodes as just kind of like a almost a masterclass in how to start a larger arc. I absolutely agree. And I love that you see the contrast between life as it was, and then you end up in the bus on QZ as it is. And this contrast shows what everybody has lost, right? And the world feels lived in. This show is firing on all cylinders, in my opinion, right? The environments, the costumes, the acting, the writing, the music, everything works very, very well together to create a world that seems larger than just what we're seeing. And as a father myself, I got to say that the scene where Joel, they're driving around in a pickup truck, and then I think there's a plane that's crashing above, right? You can imagine that people started being infected in the plane and some plane crashes and some kind of shrapnels hits the pickup and they crash. And now Joel has to run around the city with his daughter in his arms as everything is like falling apart around him. And the level of anxiety that this gives me trying to imagine having like my kid in my arms and trying to bring them to safety. But it's not like, oh, there was a industrial accident in the city and just run this way and it's going to be fine over there, right? It's not just one place that's the problem. I'm sure like, the level of panic as you imagine that, okay, this is probably everywhere now. And I think they do a great job of creating this apocalyptic world, basically. I agree. I also thought that the opener was especially effective 
because there's a few different ways that you can introduce a story. You can do the Star Wars where you tell the story in a scroll across the screen. You can have some type of narration monologue behind some type of visuals. But I thought this with the scientist on stage, basically giving this really easy to understand explanation for how fungus is this like looming threat. And I will admit, after watching that, I was like, is that real? It sounded awfully accurate from a scientific standpoint. That kind of makes me nervous. But I thought that was such an effective way to do it. And that shows up a few times in the series where, again, I'm sure that wasn't in the video game. It wasn't. But it's a good way to bridge the story to the actual gameplay and everything involved there. And that was just like really well done. Yeah, they put a lot of work into creating a kind of realistic feeling apocalypse, basically, right? Some shows like, let's hand wave it away, like there's zombies over there. This show's not zombies, right? They never call them zombies once. It's like the infected, and they try to explain how there's this existing cardiceps that will infect the brain of ants and control them and all that. And it's like making all these parallels with existing things. And then you just extrapolate a little bit further away that it could happen to humans. But trying to ground this in some kind of scientific truth makes it even more effective. Yeah, I totally agree. And Speaking of which, it's a good segue to episode two, right? Because this one opens in Jakarta in Indonesia. The military goes find this mycologist to examine something for them. And I thought this opening was also brilliant. It's not in the game and it adds so much depth because in the game, you never know what's going on around the world, right? But this puts in context, okay, may have started in some like flower factory and then they're shipping the flower around the world. And there's all these things where in the first episode they talk about they want to make pancake, but they can't and they want to eat the cookies. But it's probably one of the reasons why they didn't get infected while some of the neighbors were, right? Because I guess they ate low carbs. I don't know. But the scene where I thought the actress who plays the mycologist was great. And when you see in her face the realization that's like, yeah, there's nothing we can do, right? They just bomb the city. I just want to go see my family before you bomb me, basically. Powerful stuff. Big time. Big time. Again, similar type of mechanism to tell the storyline. Really effective. The actors and actresses that they picked for these. Great execution when she delivers that line in terms of, I want to spend time with my family bomb the city. It's like, whoa. I think it's an effective use of the same mechanism where you're bringing in somebody to tell the backstory to this situation. She delivers that punch, which is bomb the city. And I think it actually introduces a theme that comes across in a lot of horror movies, especially a lot of contagion movies, which is your perceived ally is actually just as much of a threat as the obvious enemy. So it's like you should be all working together to fight against the fungus or the disease or whatever it might be. But then you quickly start to realize that the human race around you is just as much of a threat to you now as the fungus is. and. It's commonly used in other movies that fit in the same genre, and they introduce it in unique ways here as well, where you start to see it early on in episode one, definitely in episode two as well, and then it's a continued theme throughout the show, which goes to your earlier point, Liberty. I think they did that really well because that makes you lean less on needing to see the perceived bad guys, the zombies. He doesn't need to be killing the clickers over and over and over again because he has another threat out there looming at all times. Yeah, it's pretty easy to imagine why Joel isn't exactly in love with Fedra and the government right after they killed his daughter. You get out of the zombies and then you see a soldier and it's like, good, great, we're saved, right? <laughs> and it's like, 
sorry, we can't trust that anyone's not infected, so we're just going to shoot everyone trying to come out. In the second episode, after that, because one thing we didn't mention is that at the end of the first episode, that's when Tess and Joel find out that Ellie was bitten, right? And so they don't know if it's true that she's immune, they don't know if she's going to turn. It starts with what I think is kind of like, it's almost a painting where you see Ellie sleeping in the green moss in a beam of light, and you have Joel and Tess on the other side in the darkness looking at her with guns, and they're like trying to decide what are we going to do, are we going to shoot her, is she turning? They don't know how long it takes every time, right? It could be very quick, it could be, I think they mentioned maybe a day or two. So they're looking at her, trying to decide what they're going to do. I don't know, the symbolism of that and the visual storytelling is incredible. As I say, I could print that frame out and use it as a painting. It's an excellent picture. It's kind of got a little bit of a Mary Joseph Jesus vibe to it with the sun shining through and the light. And there were a few visuals, I think, in the first two episodes that were particularly good. I would say just in general, CGI has gotten like really tough on me in recent years. It did not feel like it had that same type of bad CGI where you're seeing elsewhere. Like a lot of the scenes with the ruins they were really effectively done. And then in terms of cinematography, I thought at the end of episode two, where they're in that upper room, it gave me vibes of the Jurassic Park cafeteria. That's great. I have that in my notes. I don't know if it's a direct homage, but the raptors and you're in the kitchen hiding from the raptors. I also got, I don't know if you've seen the movie Annihilation. I got some of that vibes, how the fungus grows, like the old corpses that are kind of like flowering and the use of light and shadows when they were going up the stairs with the flashlights, that was very annihilation. And some references from the game that if you haven't played it, you don't know. The music that they use in the theme and in some parts of it is taken directly from the game. It's the same composer, same music, so that's a great reference. And in the game, Ellie can swim. So every time there's some water, you have to like put her on some raft or a pallet or something and you kind of like push her around and try to help her. And so the joke when they get to the water and she's like, oh, I can't swim. And Joel like, is like, yeah, it's not that deep and it's just super shallow. That was a nice game reference. It's funny you bring up Jurassic Park because I was thinking about CGI in the same respect. Where it's like, How has CGI gotten worse over the years? Because I watched like a few clips of Jurassic Park like a couple of months ago. I was like, this is incredibly good compared to what is getting produced today. How have we gone backwards here? I was definitely pleasantly surprised with how they did things in Last of Us. I do appreciate the real prosthetics that they had instead of just trying to green suit everyone. The tie to Annihilation is definitely on point because Annihilation definitely had a lot of CGI, but it was still really effectively done. There's like a naturalistic, almost impressionistic painting quality to the way that they did it. And it definitely is echoed here. The point about Jurassic Park and CGI, I think back then they could do so little that they had to really respect the limitations. And a lot of Jurassic Park is actually practical. They did tons of animatronics and the parts of the dinosaur when you see them up close. And I feel like Last of Us has a lot of that too. They could have done tons of stuff in CGI, but maybe it's because they had the budget, right? I think it cost like 10 or 15 million per episode to do the show, but they really built all of that. They got the people playing the infected are fans of the show that they could reproduce exactly how the clickers and the there's different types of infected in the show there's people who just got bitten and they're like super aggressive and they run around and they just try to get at you then there's the infected that have been infected for a long time and their head is all an overgrown kind of mushroom they can't see anymore so they do echolocation and they do these 
super creepy clicking noises that the same voice actors who did the clicks for the game did them for the TV show. They're very similar. And so the tension of like not trying to make sound and then when he's trying to reload his gun and he's like holding his flashlight with his neck and then it's a revolver, right? So he has to take out all the bullets and not trying to drop the shells and the tension in the museum was very, very well executed. And I love that just one or two clickers are shown as like, it's a formidable opponent. You're not going to mow them down quickly. You shoot and you miss, right? And then they're right on top of you. And so after episode two or the whole rest of the series, it's like, okay, I'm afraid of infected now. They could have gone a very different direction, right? The, the Walking Dead were like, oh yeah, there's 50 zombies over there. Let's go mow them down. But I prefer this approach. One thing that immediately comes to mind is with the Matrix, I felt like from one to two, I know Neo got more powerful, but it all of a sudden it just went from like, okay, Neo's got to be afraid of agents to all of a sudden like, not Mr. Anderson is completely fine. If an agent comes by, he can kill 500 at once. I was like, wait a second. It feels like this got a little bit stretched because now even some of the compadres of Neo don't seem to have as many problems with agents. So they didn't fall into that trap here. No, and the end of episode two, where it was just the first time they, they saw infected and Tess has been bitten. And then there's the, I'll stay behind and try to help you with my last remaining like lucid moments. I thought that was very well executed. And the infected kiss, right? That's an image that's, uh, it's hard to get out of my head with the, the kind of tendrils that come out of the mouth. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty gross. What do you guys think of that one? That was disgusting. <laughs> it was very effective. I did think the actress who plays Tess did an excellent job in those last final moments where you can really see like her psychology is kind of getting split where clearly the cordyceps is taking over her sense of motivation in some respects but there's that last little bit of who she is is still like hanging on to control of her right hand trying to light that lighter whereas like her face is kind of like just gone except for like the little bit of that terror in the eyes i thought that was pretty impressive where you could see an internal change occurring in multiple different parts of her external self. I thought it was fantastic. They could have made different choices, right? When the infected come in the room, they could have jumped on her and torn her apart or whatever. But no, they recognize her as one of their own, right? And that's even worse. <laughs> she is really turning. You know what that reminded me of? From the Alien series, where the aliens will recognize if a human has an egg inside of them. They just like, no, they won't attack that human because of it. I was instantly reminded of that. I was like, oh, that's so creepy how they just know that they already have another one. <laughs> another aspect that's pretty cool, and they changed it a little bit from the game, but it's that coming in, you kind of get that the central relationship in the game is between Joel and Ellie. But it's not like Joel is like, first time you meet Ellie, it's like, hey, like you're my daughter now, right? It starts from very, very far. And Joel is actually trying not to like her and not to open up to her. The first thing that they do is like he points a gun in her face and steps on her knife. They're kind of swearing at each other. And Joel is basically so damaged from losing his daughter that he's not wanting to open up to that kind of stuff again, right? Even his relationship with Tess, you can feel as Tess is telling him, it's like, well, you've given me as much as you could, but like you feel that he's still trying to stay close off to her. So I think the arc between Joel and Ellie is probably the most interesting in the whole show to me. We can see where it starts from. And I think we can go to episode three, which to me is, as you said, Tinker, to me, it's the masterpiece. It's kind of a standalone episode in many ways, but it's also central to the whole show. And 
a parallel I've seen a lot and I agree with it. It's like, take the first 10 minutes of the film Up by Pixar and then stretch it up to a whole episode where you see the whole basically life of a relationship and a couple. It was really, really powerful. And it's another one that showed that what some people lost from the life before, some people kind of gained it because Nick Offerman's character is one of those preppers who's like kind of super happy about the end of the world. He gets into a kind of routine where it's like, okay, I'm going to be alone. I'm going to enjoy it. It's going to be fine. Kind of like Joel, he's not trying to open up to relationships. He's trying to chase away Frank's character as quickly as possible, basically. But it's the central theme, as I was saying. It's like the ones you love are what gives you this reason to keep going, right? In that world. And what this love will make you do, right? All of the violence and all that stuff. And search for meaning. Yeah. It's a funny kind of thing because in this apocalyptic world, Bill and Frank have kind of won because they die with the one that they love after having lived pretty much as long as they could in as good a circumstance as you could imagine in that world. So they're the two that won, right? It kind of shows how everything is relative because compared to our life, it seems like a pretty difficult life. You're living stuck into a small compound. There's raiders that could come at any time. You have to trade with smugglers for any kind of like strawberries or whatever. But for that world, this is what success looks like. I think why this episode is so effective is because it's effectively a giant montage. I have a big problem with montages because they are incredibly deceptive. The quintessential montage is Rocky getting into shape before his fight in that movie. The thing that it does that is kind of insidious for the human mind is it really skips over all of the important tedium and the logistics that are required for real human growth and improvement to happen. You get, what, two minutes of Rocky getting into shape and all of a sudden he's this superhero in the boxing ring. And while we can understand that on like a rational level, because it skips all of the hundreds of hours that are required, it really misses the boring parts of what are required for that kind of success. That's the primary reason why I really usually don't like montages. But when it's that montage is spread out to something so long as you get with episode three, it allows you to delve into some of the you just get more of the boring parts in a really good way. For example, like just the raw logistics of how Bill has arranged his prepper life is extremely satisfying for me because it's like, okay, I get that this is possible, but I really need to be sold on how it's possible in order for it to be believable. And you get to see every little detail. Like he goes back to the power plant and like turns his gas back on. It's like, yes, thank you. He's the sort of person who knows exactly what got turned off and what needs to get turned back on. And he's just got everything actually mapped out and it's very convincing. Are you trying to say that Kevin McAllister and Home Alone did not have a plausible <laughs> way to keep out two burglars? Because <laughs> I will say, Bill moved the top five power rankings in terms of best home protection system above Kevin McAllister after this. I agree, though. Those details were so important and so key. Going to Lowe's and buying the fence and just huge. A good like counterexample, you bring up Home Alone. I was having dinner with friends the other night and we watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Great movie, but there's just so much that's just entirely, incredibly improbable to the point of like, what? <laughs> this makes no sense on so many levels. 
it'd be kind of be interesting like what if that movie was remade by someone who was very serious and tried to iron out all of those logistics kind of wonder what that would look like luckily that wasn't the case with episode three here where it was everything was like so nicely laid out i almost even wanted more of the logistics it's like okay well, like what were the hunting patterns and like where was the whole garden to have this many vegetables like <laughs> i know you need at least a third of an acre for planting in order to get that many vegetables but then he's in massachusetts so does that change it my mind is going through all of these practical details but it was still is extremely satisfying in that regard Bill and Frank, they could get their own like prequel spin-off show where you see the 20 years that they spent together in that little like town and all the adventures, right? I'm sure they had to skip over a lot of stuff. They could imagine a lot more stuff. What killed me at the end of the episode was the mix of joy and sadness. I think I've always been like this, but when something is just sad, like, okay, it can be really sad. But when it's like joyous at the same time, right? Because you're kind of happy for them because they have each other and they're going out on their own terms and the last day, the last supper, the music on the nature of daylight playing and all of that. It's like, I don't know how they could have done that scene better. The acting, like I hope both of them get a truckload of Emmys because I haven't seen something this powerful on TV in a long, long time. Yeah, I didn't know Offerman had that in him. And Murray following up the White Lotus with that was really, really damn impressive. Just like some funny little anecdotes about the episode. When Ellie first basically stabs the dead wounded in the beginning of the episode at like the basement of the deli. So me not having played the game, I actually thought that was Frank the whole time. So I'm wondering how the hell did Frank end up in the deli? There's like some type of visual similarities there. So I'm waiting for how this is going to end up happening. It's going to be some tragic story where He goes into town on their last thing. He falls through the floor. <laughs> wow. So these are things where you don't play the game and then you get surprised. And then to close out the episode, that letter was just phenomenally written. And I have this particular appreciation for people that don't necessarily get along with each other, but respect each other. And I think it can happen in a lot of places in the world. And it's very hard to do that. If somebody, you know, you don't see eye to eye with or you just like they bother you, they've rubbed in the wrong way, to be able to still respect them takes a lot of character. And you might not be able to do that until like the very end of your life, you know, when you're writing the letter and actually saying that. But then that line, we are protectors. That's what we are here to do. God help any motherfuckers that stand in our way. That was just like a, ooh, I got like a, a jolt of adrenaline reading that. And it was so key to like the storyline and everything. Incredible execution. Was the letter in the game? No, not like that. And I think in the game, it wasn't quite as obvious the whole like protector uh, was more of a subtext. But here, I think it makes tons of sense because I think we can speak more about it episode by episode. But a lot of Joel's motivation and decisions come from that. I have to protect Ellie. What can I do to do that? Or I don't believe I can do it. So I'm going to try to find someone else to do it. It's really made explicit that some people's what they're best at in life is basically protecting someone else, right? And We see where that goes, but anything else on episode three before we move to four? I love that point, Matt, you brought up about how two people can really dislike each other, but still have a respect that overrides all of that. I think there's something quintessentially human about that, especially it's kind of weird that they didn't like each other because they're so capable in similar ways, which usually spurs some admiration among two individuals who don't have, I don't know, some 
flaming insecurities that are getting in the way of that. Whereas like you see sort of like a creature of the same environment who's thriving in their own arena, but in similar ways. I get the feeling that Bill is thinking all the time that if someone could get me and steal what I've got here or kill Frank, it would be Joel. He's not afraid of others we see as kind of inferiors or not as capable, but he's like, okay, Joel, he could probably get me if he wanted to. Maybe it goes to the protector idea where he's sort of auto on guard because of that protector instinct. Yeah. And it feels like Bill probably knows about some of Joel's past because it's implied that Joel hasn't always been a good guy. And that's another theme of the show. It's like, well, regular people, if they're just trying to survive or protect the ones they love, well, maybe they can be the ones doing the ambush. Maybe they can be the ones stealing stuff, killing people. That's probably so common in that world that you have to be on guard all the time. Let's have a look at episode four. And this one, I love that we had some more scenes between just Joel and Ellie. If I could change something about this series, instead of nine episodes, maybe it could have been like 11 and just have more of them walking around. That's my favorite part. Their relationship could probably have gotten a little bit more time, but I also understand that they wanted zero filler and stayed pretty close to the game. I could not agree more. I think the whole Kathleen Henry sequence in Is It Kansas City? I wasn't a big fan of it. I felt like it was, oh, here's the whole, I'm in a video game and I have to like solve and basically go through this giant rat maze that has like a very clear good guy and a very clear bad guy. And the objective is like Kathleen is extremely one dimensional. The only attempt to make her have even another side to that dimension is that she's got this dead brother who is some sort of saint and that kind of balances out how straightforwardly evil she is. She's just kind of like the worst of humanity. And there's nothing about Kathleen that you can really grapple onto in terms of liking. And I think that's a huge problem. I think the best villains are ones that you really kind of empathize for and make you uncomfortable in the fact that you can kind of see where they're coming from. Where with Kathleen, it's like, ah, oh, this is just a bad guy that's in the way. She's literally a rock wall that Joel needs to just climb over or outsmart or go under, which they use tunnels to get out of the city. So quite literally, I really wasn't a big fan of that entire sequence. And I wish they had cut it for exactly what you're saying, Liberty, about I wish they we just explored more slow character development with Ellie and Joel. If you guys have ever done a big, long cross-country trip, it's got these really beautiful, boring moments. I'm kind of going back to my whole spiel about montage where I like the boring development, especially when it comes to the characters. You have that great scene where they're in the woods and Ellie ends the night by giving that horrible pun about the scarecrow being outstanding in his field. If you notice, the exact next cut is Joel just standing there like a scarecrow, functioning like a scarecrow, but for humans which was just a nice little bridge there. And it was a nice quiet moment. And then the whole Kathleen Henry scenario just feels like a lot of noise that gets plopped into the middle of the entire season in order to just make executives happy. And maybe it's part of the video game. Whereas I would have liked more of a slow road show. The episode did have... Cormac McCarthy, the road vibes, very much so, where it was like, 
you were going in that direction where it was nice, long, drawn out, like character development. And then I definitely agree with you. It is the most video game-esque portion of the series where it's like, oh, we have the next level. We have a boss that we have to beat. What are going to be the twists and turns? I think that the actress that played Kathleen was unconvincing that she wouldn't just get overthrown in this whole thing. She also happened to play a character in Two and a Half Men, an old sitcom, and I could not detach her from that. So it was one of these things where her presence, I was like, wait a second, I know her. Oh, wait, I know her from that. Now this makes it even more strange, like very strange, like attachment. And I would say I thought leading into episode five, these things kind of like are pieced together in some ways, like four and five almost could be one big episode. Some of the finales there were really interesting from a pure action standpoint. But the lead up, it felt very much like cut in and jammed into this series in the most video game-esque way of anything in the series overall. I'm glad you brought up The Road. And I definitely want to ignore the movie version (laughs) of that story. But the book, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, is one of my favorite books. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of fiction out there. It kind of fits that giant montage, which is actually satisfying. And there's a lot to be said about good art is taking the mundane, boring parts of life and showing people just how beautiful they actually are. And this is kind of the main tension of just being a human where most of the time, because of your thoughts about the past and the future, you're just glossing over all of this beauty that's actually in front of you. And you're just kind of oblivious to it. Whereas Good art scrubs that away and gives you a chance to remember like, oh, there's actually something really precious going on here, even though there's technically nothing going on here. So yeah, just trying to appreciate that what could have been done here, but instead we got this giant boss level. I think you nailed it on the head by saying it that way. I've read The Road before having kids and I haven't dared read it again since. I feel it would destroy me. (laughs) I generally agree with you about Kathleen. I think So in the game, it's mostly like faceless raiders in the city and you just try to escape from them, right? And so they added some depth by giving a little bit more backstory, mostly in five, right? And four, I respect what they were trying to do, but I don't think it quite works with Kathleen. I think what works really well is the ambush where they drive into the laundromat and then there's the scene with Brian pleading for his life. And that part is like, that's one of the things that humanizes the enemy there, right? They're just people trying to survive right and they're doing bad things and then you can figure out that joel did some of the same things right when he says i've been on both sides of the ambush right that's why he he knew he was coming and the scene when brian is like pleading and saying his name and talking about his mom and asking for their name and we can be friends that to me was like another scene that i haven't seen something like that on tv in a long time right where at first you're like oh yeah shoot the bad guys over there and yeah 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 and then oh shit it's real people and you see it from ellie's point of view at first on the other side of the wall and then it's Ellie who has to come save Joel. And the way that Joel skips over being happy that Ellie saved him to being mad at himself for failing as a protector. To me, that's another like hammering the theme of the show. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that makes Joel want to give the job to someone else later. We'll talk about when he tried to get Tommy to do it. But to me, that was very realistic where as a parent, if I was put in that position, I would be mad at myself for just getting in that position and having my kid have to do that kind of stuff. I think the whole arc with Kathleen is 
Like if we zoom out a bit, I think it's interesting the point you're trying to make about like, so they overthrew Fedra in that city because like they were kind of bad and evil. And then it's kind of like the human thing where when you're fighting evil, there's always the chance that you become evil. You know, we've seen that in world history where like you overthrow some dictator or some bad regime, but then the new guys become just as bad and become dictators themselves. And I get the theme that they were going for. I think in episode five, it worked better than in episode four though. I would agree. And I think one of the things that you hit on there that was interesting in that ambush scene, which becomes a bigger theme of the overall show. And I don't know that I've seen this executed as well as I did here in any show or any movie is actually killing what you could argue are the innocent. Joel being the bad guy, it's alluded to throughout the show. And there's this thread of, oh, I've done some bad things. But then you actually start to see him do things where, okay, yes, they were a threat, but how much of a threat were they really? And Ellie falls into that category as well. But you never stop rooting for them. You could easily take a movie and spin it in terms of putting on different characters. And Ellie and Joel could be bad. They could be really bad people. But they were so effective at basically like drawing this out in a really slow way, giving you an understanding of as to why they're making the decisions the way they are. And that was one thing that I hadn't really considered, especially with that ambush scene that starts to play out for the rest of the show. I think it also gives a sense of how dangerous the world that they live in is because your survival could rest on like a single decision, a single thing, right? You don't hear the guy coming or, okay, you leave him alive because you you want to show mercy. And then he tells his buddies, oh, they went over there and then you die, right? It feels like the decisions that they have to make are life and death, basically every turn of the way. One thing that I'm reminded of If you just think about people's level of stress, it's been 20 years since this happened. And you hear of the stories of when London was getting bombed during World War II, people get really inured to it to the point where they'll just walk through a destroyed part of the city just to like they're delivering milk or something. And meanwhile, there's like air raid sirens going off and they're like calm as a cow kind of thing. So stress levels very quickly reestablished to a certain level. And that relates to something that always confuses me in nature where you'll see a predator in close vicinity with its normal variety of lunch, which is very much alive. But it seems like they're just hanging out. And from the perspective of a creature in society, it's always like a little confusing to be like, why isn't the predator chasing the prey right now? That's kind of just the natural way of how stress levels are working there. And I guess they just have an unspoken set of signals where it's like, all right, things are kind of cool right now. Not hungry right now, but maybe that'll change soon. Yeah. So I'm kind of wondering like why we never get to see something like that in a post-apocalyptic story like this, where every single time you have humans that come into contact, there's instantly like super high stress. I guess it's because technically two predators when they come into contact, there's instantly that sort of spike in stress in terms of like territory and dominance. I guess it would have been interesting to have a sort of scenario where there's clear enemies who are just maybe exhausted and decide to ignore each other. Like two naval ships sailing past each other in the night and the only two people awake are the ones at the helm. And they're like, I just, I'm not going to wake anyone up because I don't want to deal with what's going to happen kind of thing. It's like, I'm going to nod to this person, hope that they are just as exhausted as me, and we're going to sail past <laughs> each other and <laughs> live another day. It's like trench warfare in World War I, right? Where they had truces and for Christmas and they sing song and both sides, 
if anyone fired at the other side, they would get reprimanded by their own side. Like, don't break the truth. We're not dying right now. Let's not do anything to change that. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I, I do think it makes a lot of sense. It comes down to heart rate. Certain predators just have this really low heart rate prior to actually making the kill. But then you actually have the prey where like my dog was up three times last night because she heard like a screeching from outside of our window and I could feel her heart and it just like fires up immediately goes bursting. So there's like a predator versus prey situation. But I did think there were interesting pieces in this episode, like when they got to the classroom and they were just hanging out to me, I was like, why aren't they more on alert here? But maybe it's because they have their tribe and they felt comfortable with their tribe versus like engaging with another tribe where like back in the day, predator versus predator. So there were instances where I thought that either Joel and Ellie should be more on alert or bigger groups should be more on alert and they weren't. And maybe that's where it comes into play. But it is an interesting point overall, because like you said, people actually adjust fairly quickly to some of this stuff in reality. It's been 20 years, so... Would people be this tribal still? Because the infected seem quite well managed. I don't know. I don't know. They were hanging people who left the QZ and like the first episodes, like it only takes one, right? That brings the infection inside and then the whole thing could fall apart. If we move on to episode five, which is kind of like a continuation of the fourth one, I thought that Henry and Sam, the actors did a great job there. And in the game, it's a bit different. Sam is not deaf. So I thought that was a great decision, a great change, because it makes the big brother feel that his younger brother is more dependent on him, right? And there's a kind of parallel there with Ellie and Joel. It was very interesting visually to see them sign to each other. And maybe sometimes like Sam doesn't always hear what's going on around. And I think trying to imagine a young kid trying to survive in that kind of world, right? Because as a father, I can't help but think about what I would do if my kids were in that situation. To me, that part was very affecting. And the actor playing Henry, I don't know, he felt very charismatic and very sincere. I thought he did a great job. I thought those two performances were very strong and the tandem was very strong, similar to how Bill and Frank gave a parallel to Joel and Tess. This gave an interesting parallel to Joel and Ellie. So I thought there was something interesting there, especially how they established some type of similar bond where there was like a separation, but there was a bond. I also thought it humanized Ellie a little bit. Like there were stretches of the show where I thought to myself like, oh, her character tendencies are getting really stretched here. So to then have her interact with another child, which I think is the biggest thing. Like if you're someone who's younger interacting with adults the entire time and somebody who hasn't seen the world in the way that those adults have, you might have these weird, odd tendencies like she does. Whereas when she's interacting with another child and she shows that like mentorship. It's a good reminder that she's a child too, right? She's only 14. And once in a while that comes out, she has to kind of suppress that in the environment just to survive and to be tough, but give her some quiet time. And then she reverts back to being a kid. Exactly. I thought that was pretty interesting from a storyline. And then just in terms of the actual uh, cinema, the sinkhole and everything happening there, like the World War Z type final scene. That was pretty impressive. That was pretty cool. And that did it for me for a show where the action was very like thought out to have a big sequence like that executed as well as it was. I was like, wow, that is some pretty damn insane TV right there. So I did like that payoff at the end. Two thoughts on that one. The change in Ellie, I think is great because it's just a continuation of that natural protector theme that you get from 
Bill's letter, she starts playing this mothering role to the kid and like trying to help him out. And she literally puts her blood into his wound, hoping that like maybe it'll work, which is obviously super risky. But something a kid would think of, right? Yeah. I thought it might work too. I had no idea. Yeah. Who knows? On the World War Z aspect, one thing that did distract me is the giant super monster one who's like ripping people apart. I'm like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense because that was a person you could have infected, but now the body is not worthy of being a host. It's actually counterproductive to the survival of your species to like kill your food source here. What are you doing? Like very impressive monster, but. (laughs) Yeah, they're in the games. I think they call them bloaters. And these are pretty rare, but I think like in some places where an infected has been on the ground for years and years and years and their whole body basically is covered in fungus and they kind of like, they're all bloated, right? I don't know. He probably just ripped his head off because he was firing and killing more infected than he was worth. But I think that scene was very impressive, especially for TV, right? It's hard to do good action on those types of budgets. A few little logistics stuff didn't work quite as well for me. Some shots you saw people walking around it didn't feel like they were in the middle of the mayhem, right? A few things like that. But generally, like the scene where Ellie is trying to hide in the car and there's the child infected, like flopping around the seats and the tension was very good. And the way they bounced between the perspective of Joel in the sniper nest above, and then he fires, and then you see the shot where it lands, and then the camera follows what's going around then, and then it moves to Henry and Sam, and then we're able to keep the action very clear. Like in my head, I could see what's happening. It would have been very easy to go shaky cam, and you don't know what anything is, but I thought they did a great job there. The only thing I wish they had used a bit more is the big truck with the plow that says run in front. To me, that's iconic from the game. And I wish they had used it a little bit better because it was set up super great. You see it run by in the fourth episode and you see it again. They did a good job with it. I wish you had a few more seconds of that iconic shot. Another thing I love was the underground kind of classroom or daycare or whatever. I thought that was a great way to tell so much backstory without any words, right? You just see and you can imagine the whole spin-off show about living on the dairy with trying to take care of children for years and how terrible it must have been, basically, but you still try to let kids be kids, right? So everything's colorful, there's like soccer goals on the wall, and then there's a rule, right? Always make sure the doors are locked and all of that. And I don't know, it's so sad, but they tell it all without basically any dialogue. Yeah, I think they do a good job in general. As you mentioned, having a deaf character makes you focus in on physical emotion. And Pedro Pascal as an actor, I mean, he wears it all on his face, especially in the early episodes where he says so little, but he's so effective at showing emotion or anger or frustration or even doubt that I think overall, they did a really good job with that across all the actors. And because in this world, there's a kind of karma where anything good that happens, you know, something bad is going to come back. Joel and Ellie meet this duo that could have been like, oh, yeah, we're going to go on the road together and help each other and we have different skills and everything. And then when Sam and Ellie are writing basically late at night and it's like, he asks like, is it still you inside when you turn into a monster? And then you realize, oh, no, he's been infected. I don't know. That's another tough one, right? It's, uh, it's in the game too and it's just as tragic there. And then when his own brother has to shoot him, it's like the whole protector thing again, right? The worst thing you can do as a protector in that world is to fail. It was a really intense scene, not something I expected. And that was, I think, what the show did effectively throughout was 
either characters I didn't expect to pass or people I expected to be in for longer or to part ways to see these fairly like innocent type deaths was something that I thought constantly surprised me. One thing I was surprised about overall is that it's very clear when someone's been infected, like someone has to get bitten and the skin has to be actually ripped in order for someone to be infected. So it's a very black and white scenario there where there's so much more opportunity for suspense and just tension if it's not so clear. Like maybe if you've been in the same like room as an infected, like we all know where this is going, where it immediately creates this cloud of confusion and suspicion where you have to rely on people's narratives and your level of trust with regards to how valid you think their narrative is. And so that really puts a strain on the human relationships, whereas the entire black and white, like, have you been bitten and is the bite bleeding kind of thing makes it very definitive and black and white. And while that makes it easier to sort of survive in the practical sense, I think it's a missed opportunity in terms of just exploring human relationships in a very insidious and difficult way, especially given the last few years. It would be more like the silence, right? You're never quite sure who's a silent. In the game, you can get infected by spores in game just by breeding them. So a lot of the game, you're wearing like a gas mask or a mask on your face. I think they made the decision in the show not to do that because you couldn't see the face of people most of the time, but also the kind of visual storytelling with the bite mark and like the moment you show it. And sometimes it's an invisible place, sometimes not. Right, Tess, it's in our, our neck. She could have hidden it for a while. I think it still worked pretty well. Like the logistics of like, okay, you're in the museum, right? Are you just breeding in spore all the time? Like it would have been harder scientifically to convince you that these people have not been infected yet. While in the game, it's easy to suspend this belief that, like, okay, you put on your gas mask and game mechanics mean that you're safe. But we know from the past few years that like, even if you wear a mask, you can still get it. It's airborne. Yeah. So episode six, I love that it starts with a time jump and the whole thing is different, right? The color palette is now snow, you're outside. It would have been so easy for a lesser show for worse writers to always keep you in the same urban environment with the overgrown vegetation and like all the same thing. But now it feels totally different all of a sudden. I love that it starts with the old couple in the cabin. I thought that was super funny. The whole thing with like, why didn't you shoot them? And like, oh, my gun's all the way over there. And are you telling them the truth? Yeah. Are you telling me the truth? Yeah. That was perfect. Tiny characters, but they feel like they're real people who've been living there for a long time. They're a real couple with like all of the unsaid communication between them. I thought that was perfect. It might be the example of two ships passing in the night with the nod. At least the woman, she might be the only one who practices that, but that's the vibe she's giving off. Yeah, that's a great point. They absolutely crushed it. I felt like that five, six, seven minutes or whatever that whole scene was, it was kind of like another episode three, but it was all just hinted at in terms of how well those two actors played off of each other. And the dialogue was just so tight and so character driven. It was really, really good. Yeah. And it feels like, I don't know if the woman knew that Joel wasn't going to kill them because he had a child with him, right? And so that's a signal sometimes. And maybe if Joel was alone, things would have been different. But in that world, probably being out there with a kid is like such a powerful signal because most people wouldn't even survive. It also made me think a little bit about whose lives change the most in periods like that or in an environment like that. 
their lives probably changed the least, you know, like (laughs) they were probably doing the same thing they were doing before, maybe with some slight alterations. And yeah, you have to have your guard up a little bit more, but maybe she was acting like she would have if some strangers showed up at their doorstep 25 years ago. Now they just don't go over the river. (laughs) She was phenomenal because I also got the sense of her enjoying it being like, oh, this is an interesting day. This is far different than the last few months. I'm curious what's going to happen when my husband comes home. Yeah, no fear at all. And then the next big section of this episode is when they find the kind of commune where Tommy's living. Deadwood. Yeah, basically they find Deadwood. Oh, wow, that's a crossover I want to see. I thought the biggest character moment there was when Joel basically tried to dump Ellie with Tommy and convince Tommy to bring her to the Fireflies. And Adam lived through the show. So far, you could be like, okay, he's just like, he doesn't care about her. But it's the opposite. I think he's trying to dump her on Tommy because he loves her so much that he can't lose his daughter again, right? He doesn't trust himself to be able to do it. He doubts his capabilities. He finds Tommy to be better at it, or at least he doesn't want the responsibility. So I thought that was very interesting writing. This one didn't really work for me because you basically take a situation where you've been trying to find your brother for so long. She is the cargo along the way to find your brother. And now you're going to show up and send off the cargo and your brother into a dangerous situation without being with them. And I was like, "Ah, I don't know if that makes a ton of sense. If they don't come back, you're going to feel pretty bad about yourself (laughs) after that. So that was one where I was like, I get the plot line and the story. But if I have to zoom in, I was like, wait a second, why would he send Tommy? No, that's a good point. I think you could argue it's like, okay, Tommy knows the era really well. He's done it before. He can probably do it faster without Joel. Or Joel is like so insecure about it that he's like, okay, I'm just going to be a net negative on this, right? But I agree with you. It's a little bit like it had to happen this way for the plot. But I still think it's powerful. Just the whole thing of like, I don't even trust myself to keep her alive. You see the doubt starting to come in. The big shouting match that they have in Ellie's room is like taken from the game shot for shot and line for line. It's exactly even what she says at the end. The wording is weird, but it feels like something someone would say in the moment. Joel is like, what do you know about loss? And like, he's trying to be like, I lost Tess. I lost my daughter. Like the subtext is like, I'm not going to lose you. Right. And Ellie, she answers something like, what do I know about loss? I've lost everybody that I've loved or that cared about everyone except fucking you. And That's powerful, right? And that's the thing. When you love someone, you don't think about trading them for a stranger. So the thing that Joel is trying to do is kind of force for him because he's trying to deny that he loves her. He's trying to pretend, no, 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 this is just cargo. Tommy's better. He's going to bring the cargo. But when he's probably had the whole night to think about it, so he's in the stables the next morning, just pretending to be there for no reason. And when Ellie picks him in a fraction of a second, in a millisecond, when given the choice, that's a perfect character moment for me. It's like, yeah, she loves Joel at this point. She's not even considering going with Tommy, even if Tommy was much better and younger and whatever. There's also the aspect that Joel was really disappointed when it became clear that Tommy was now married. They're at the dinner table or whatnot, and Joel's like, do you mind if we just have family? And Tommy's awkwardly like, well, uh, we're all actually family here now. And Joel is clearly disappointed He was envisioning when he was reunited with Tommy for it to be far different than it actually unfurls to be because Tommy now has these other connections. Maybe that's a part of how it could be believable where he wants to, oh, well, this relationship with Tommy isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I'm 
insecure about being the protector of Ellie, maybe I can just like pair those two disappointments together and be done with it and go off on my own and be miserable. You kind of see it over time too with his panic attacks and it's like, he's really a broken man, right? He's lost his daughter. He's almost lost Ellie a bunch of times. He's lost Tess. He's like, I'm no good at this, right? I don't even want to be close to it. So maybe that's the way to make it believable. He's adopting that LA bank robber, Neil McCauley. Don't let yourself get attached to anything that you can't run away from in 30 seconds if you feel that heat around the corner, right? That's the vibe he's trying to give off, but he can't quite stick to it. Just like good old Neil couldn't quite stick to it either. Yeah, episode by episode, you see him open up more and more. So episode seven, which is another kind of, not a bottle episode, but almost, right? Where this one wasn't part of the original game. It was a DLC. It was kind of like a separate chapter that you could download afterwards, which is the story of Ellie and Riley in the shopping center. And I don't know, I can totally see how to some people it would be one of their least favorite episodes because there's not much Joel in it and it's totally separate from the main storyline, but it really worked for me. I thought it, it fleshed out Ellie a lot and it gave answers to some of the things that were hinted at, right? When Joel asks her, like, have you ever killed someone before or stuff like that? Or were you alone in, when you got bitten? Like Tess was asking her, all that kind of stuff, you get the answer here. And they did a really great job with the actress who plays Riley. I think their chemistry was great. And the whole backstory about Ellie in military school and how she was trying to figure out which side she would go, it really worked for me. I'm curious how it worked for you guys. I loved it. I absolutely loved the episode. I thought it was a very nice foil juxtaposition to episode three because it had a similar sort of feel. It was cast back in time. It's basically completely dedicated to backstory. And the thing that I loved about it is they didn't show me the one thing that I really, really wanted to see by the end of the episode, which was clearly Ellie killed her friend Riley or had to do that just by all the implications of the conversation between her and Joel about it's not the first time I've done that sort of thing. The whole episode is kind of this just heartbreaking anticipation of this horrible, horrible thing that slowly reveals itself that's going to happen and then at the very end they don't show you it it's just left completely implied which is simultaneously infuriating but i think it was the only way to do it so effectively i thought it was great i loved everything about it another thing in particular is you get to see ellie just so enthralled with things to us that are boring goes back to that whole idea of we kind of become blind to these marvels that surround us all the time. I can see a city right now, and if someone from a couple hundred years ago could see this, they'd be absolutely mind-blown, whereas me, I'm just like, Meh, you know, I've seen this before. You get to see those revelations again, which kind of trigger you to perhaps reflect and be like, maybe there's a better way to look at the things that are constantly surrounding me. There was a lot in this episode that I found extremely satisfying and quite effective. Yeah, I got to agree with you about like, I was sure that it would show us maybe at the beginning of episode eight or something. But now that I think back, I'm glad that they didn't because whatever we imagine is probably more powerful than seeing it anyway. And just imagine, right? As a teen, you feel things so powerfully, right? Everything for the first time. Imagine being at the peak life moment of young love where you love someone and you learn that they love you back. And isn't it the most amazing thing in the world? And then moments later, you know that you're going to die together. And then it's even worse. You're not dying, but you may have to kill them as they 
start to rip you apart, right? Because even if Ellie's immune, which she didn't know at that moment, she can still die, right? Hard to imagine something more tragic. I wasn't as high in the episode, and there were a few reasons. I thought that it came really late in the series. Like it was information that I felt like would have been useful to me a bit earlier on. There's a way to weave it into the story. It felt like it was coming so far down where I had already been introduced to Ellie. I kind of knew her personality, her style. Yes, it filled in some blanks, you know, in terms of the jokes and her like style, how she was kind of edgy and a few other things. But I felt like a lot of that to me, I had come to accept. So it was kind of like the timing of the episode was a bit strange to me. The other thing that I was waiting for and I was hoping they wouldn't do, but they did. And I will say, okay, maybe they didn't go as extreme as they do in others, but like the common horror trope of like, oh, gotta go to the mall, gotta go to the mall, Dawn of the Dead, you know, it's even stranger things. Like the mall is where it's at and everybody flocks civilization, whether they're alive or dead, are going to flock to commerce and capitalism and all this stuff. There was a little bit of that where it like stung me a little bit and that I will say, like, the montages as part of this were not as bad as they can be on some of the others. But that, like, stung me a little bit where I felt like that part was predictable. And then the only thing I would say about the end, not showing the choice to obviously kill her, was, like, was there any moment or contemplation? And I guess they kind of addressed this of, like, do we do this together? You know, is it like a, we both assume that we're, going to turn into zombies, do we just like end it together and make it poetic? I felt like they could have drawn that out a little bit more and they left a little bit on the table. But that said, I was okay with the episode. It just felt at the time, I remember watching it and saying, why didn't we get this a little bit earlier? Yeah, I feel the way that they tied it into that point in the show was Riley's speech about we don't give up. We stay together until the end. I think that's probably some of what was going through Ellie's mind as she was going up the stairs of the basement and like, do I just, like, Joel is dead, right? He's basically dying and she could easily give up. And I think that's what makes her like, no, 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 not, we never give up. Basically for the ones we love, we go until the very, very end. I think that's how they tied it. But right into episode eight, we're getting close to the final stretch and eight was quite the episode. This isn't the show and a lot of it isn't the show as is, basically. This is one of the most memorable scenes in the show for me, like the madman with a cleaver and a gun trying to shoot at you in a burning kind of restaurant. To me, that's something I remembered a decade later. It felt so heightened in the game that I was wondering how they would be able to do it in the show. I think they did pretty much as, as good a job as they could. David, the actor who plays David, is very good at being like, he's almost too charismatic. And so you're like, oh, what's he hiding? And is he just like stars for an intellectual equal in this kind of like boring flock of sheeps. And so that's why he, when he gets a chance to talk to Ellie, he's like, he figure out she's smart, basically. But then the more time passes, no, no, and that it's David the cannibal, the pedophile. This episode, well, first, I guess I'm curious, how, how did it land for you guys? What did you think of it? Matt's idea about timing for the last episode got me thinking that maybe that episode with Riley would have been good to have right after Ellie stabs the guy to save Joel and then like get rid of the Kathleen Henry scenario and put that episode right in there and then maybe stretch out the development of this whole interaction with David and his flock because I thought David as a villain in comparison to Kathleen was far more believable 
because he's got this religious duality that is simultaneously like trying to do good, but is also undergirded with this foundation of disgusting evil. And I think it would have been more interesting to kind of expand that and at the same time, like create even more tension with regards to like Joel trying to get back to Ellie and save her. Maybe that would have been more effective. But overall, I love the sequence and how Ellie and David end up at the end and she kind of has to save herself. And then Joel is just a little bit late there. Not in a bad way. He just she has to take care of the situation. And he kind of like catches her after the event in that really, really sweet moment. I thought the episode as a whole was just incredible. I'm just wondering if based on what Matt said, if there was just more opportunity to explore it with more depth, if there'd been more room in the series by rearranging things and maybe cutting out less effective parts. Yeah, I got to mention something that you pointed out that I think is so great. The misdirection that the way they go back and forth between Ellie and Joel and they set it up as, okay, Joel is going to come in and save Ellie, but she saves herself. But then he has to save her kind of emotionally, right? The moment where he's like, I got you, I got you, baby girl, like that killed me. To me, that's one of the biggest emotional payoffs of the whole series. Joel has been trying not to get close to her the whole time. And then he's been melting kind of slowly and laughing at her jokes. And okay, they talk more. And that moment is like, okay, you're my daughter, right? And so to me, that's one of the highs of the whole shows. It also made me think the final confrontation between Ellie and David where she kind of goes a little bit animalistic. I'm reminded of 28 Days Later, the sort of final sequence in there where the main character, I forget the name of the actor who plays it, but he kind of goes crazy to the point where you're wondering if he's infected in the zombie way of that movie. And Ellie kind of goes a little mad in order to save herself. I really like that. I wondered if the writers had this as a conscious decision where what we're seeing in terms of Ellie taking out David is actually it's filling in the missing part that we didn't get with her and Riley, where it's like she's done this before, but it wasn't a villain. It was actually someone else. So it's filling in that missing piece, but with rearranged characters. That was the thought and the feeling that came across where you still get that satisfaction of wanting to see what you knew was going to happen. You're just seeing it in a different guise. And Ellie's done this before, which allows her to be quite effective when it comes to taking out David. It kind of made me wonder, it was like, was she this vicious when she was forced to take out someone that she loved? Which is a kind of a horrifying and terrifying thought. And it, for me, it made her reuniting with Joel and, you know, his kind of sweet language there just all the more compelling. Maybe her taking out David and her going like vicious mode was, were we seeing what happened with her and Riley where she had to kind of turn into this other kind of evil creature in order to carry out this horrible, horrible act? So for me, it was satisfying because it's like, oh, what I didn't get in the last episode, I'm getting it now, but it's sort of this shadow of what I imagine happened there. Yeah, they did a good job laying the groundwork as to why she would be capable of doing some of that stuff even going back to episode three in the basement of that deli like i thought that was very interesting for her to kind of toy around with the zombie there and it just meant like she was somewhat wired differently maybe it was an experience maybe it was something else and then laying in that riley storyline i think explained a lot of it 
I thought your point on the effectiveness of David as a villain was excellent. It definitely gave me like lost vibes. Like, okay, there's something about these people that have been here. And if I compared him to Ben in Lost, where it's like this leader where these people seem to have some type of religious tie to him and he's all knowing and what's going on, what's the backstory. There's some clear manipulation going on. It gets really, really freaking creepy with the cannibalism and everything going on there, which I wasn't expecting, but just added to it all. And then kind of seeing like, okay, now Ellie and Joel each have their own moments of insanity where they just go savage. Like Joel is a total unguided missile in terms of that murder sequence. And it's like, oh damn, shit just got real. And then Ellie just does it herself where she uses her intelligence initially to like sneak out of it, throwing out the infected theme. And it's like, okay, now this clearly creates some type of issue between the two characters that are standing there. But it's the only thing that everybody told her not to tell anyone. It has to be kept a secret, right? But it's what kind of saves her to reveal it at that moment. Yeah. And all of it was believable to me because of all the groundwork that they laid into that character. Yeah. And when you talk about Joel, the violence there, my wife was kind of shocked, right? At how he dispatched everyone. But to me, it makes sense because these guys came back for him and were looking for him door to door, right? So it's not just an accident that they're there. If he leaves them alive, they're going to come back. He basically has to kill them. It's the only way that he survives. So I can believe that it's a utilitarian calculus. He needs you as his attorney. <laughs> You're rationalizing all of his decisions. I like that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he needs you as your attorney. Do you remember the movie Prisoners with Hugh Jackman? Yes. Yeah. Denis Villeneuve is uh, one of my favorite directors. Where Hugh Jackman has a very similar kind of arc in that movie where he's like, here's my humanity. I'm going to put it in this box because it's really going to get in the way of what I need to do right now and just goes full psycho animal mode. It reminds me of like one of my favorite books, All the King's Men, because the whole point of Robert Penn Warren's meditation on that book is, can good be achieved through evil means? Is it worth it to do something evil if in the end it's a net good or a net positive? And obviously, Robert Penn Warren's a master of navigating that through political means. But it's the same sort of question where the answer to that question is very clear cut for Joel, where it's like, yeah, these are humans and I just can't care about them. In fact, I have to do far worse than that in order to make sure that this one little good that I'm trying to uphold, you know, protecting this one person is achieved. I was very much reminded of prisoners. I was going to say that I can relate, but I just want to make it clear. I have not gone on these crazy sprees where I viciously attack people. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, with that disclaimer up front, I think there's something to it where it's human nature and especially rational beings. You know, there are the people that just have a certain level of, I do whatever I want to do and I don't care about the repercussions. But then there's rational people. And when you start to say to yourself, okay, well, if I can compartmentalize this and if I need to be a dick to this person to get my point across, you know what? I'm comfortable being a dick in this particular instance. And that's actually honestly something like I've changed over time. And it's usually not to defend me. It's to defend like something about my family and a situation that we're in where if it was just myself, I'm like, ah, whatever, I'll deal with it. I have bigger fish to fry. But if it's like, I can tell that somebody I'm related to is really disappointed by it. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to use tactics that I wouldn't otherwise use and whatever. And I'm okay with that now. 
So basically what I'm saying is if there's a zombie apocalypse and it gets dystopian and shit gets real, I think I'm willing to go there. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I think the paradox is that if you love someone, then yeah, you're willing to do the exact opposite in the name of that experience. Well, one of the main themes of the show is the things that love will make you do, right? And so the next level of discussing this is the final episode. So I had seen the game, so I knew how it ended. But I'm curious how you guys lived it. And one of the things that's super interesting is that back in the days of the game, they had test audiences that were shown the ending. And the people who don't have kids, they started to be like, oh yeah, what a twist. Joel is the bad guy after all. And the people who have kids are like, oh, I can understand why he would do something like that. I may not like it. I'm not saying he's a good guy or whatever, but I, I can understand how like if my kid was going to get killed, I would try to save them whatever the consequences. So people without children lack imagination, huh? It was kind of a 50-50 split, I think they said, right? So some of them understood, but some of them were like, oh, wow, Joel's the bad guy because he's preventing them from having the cure and blah, 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 right? I kind of see how someone could think that, but I don't know. Maybe it's because I have kids now, but I like, yeah, it's not a good thing to do, but I can understand the motivation. I don't think it's a stretch, especially after all that we've seen them go through together. Anyway, I'm curious how the kind of final twist landed for you. There's just a detail that I want to bring up, which I think makes answering that question a little difficult. If they'd actually opened up Ellie and killed her in order to try and figure out some sort of vaccine, like it's not believable for me in terms of the infrastructure and like some random doctor. There's no way they're going to pull this off. There's no certainty that killing her is going to equal saving the rest of the human species. If they developed a higher level of confidence in the viewer that this actually has a very high percentage of working, then it would have been way more difficult to stomach Joel's decisions there. But because it's kind of like a procedure happening in a backyard shack compared to what we have right now, and it's like, even with what we have right now, I'm not sure if this sort of scenario would be possible. So it just didn't seem believable. It seemed like, oh, they're going to kill this girl for probably no reason whatsoever. They're not going to be able to figure it out, even though she's immune. What are they going to do by like opening up her brain and seeing that her brain and the cordyceps lived in harmony? How are they going to be able to translate that into some sort of cure? That didn't seem believable. So it seemed entirely understandable to me. It's like, yeah, Joel should just off all of those people because this is worth it. Because the alternative just doesn't seem plausible to me. What do you think, Matt? It gave me that excuse to really rationalize with Joel a lot more. And even as somebody who I have a child, so I do have imagination. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> Liberty said it. He, he declared, I have an imagination. If it was black and white, it would be a little bit more of a dilemma in my head. And I think a real dilemma, like if this was really going to save civilization versus uh, there's some probability of it. I think that makes a big difference. I will just say generally with the twist, I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. My assumption was like Joel was going to die. The series is going to end season one with Joel dying and like they're going to have to figure out where to go from there. Not what I expected. And I was like, oh, shit, is Ellie going to die? Because that's going to make for a really weird season two. So all of it together, like maybe I'm just completely naive that I didn't see this potential outcome playing together, but I didn't. So it all came together pretty nicely. And then I did think that the close with Marlene was really interesting because it was like one person who really was taking the other side of the table as Joel. 
in terms of what was more important to do, and especially after the relationship that she had with Ellie's mother. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And if like you were going to make the case about who's right and who's wrong here, I think that's where the polarization came in. Not just because like, okay, he's just offing these random people in hallways where you don't know if they're good or bad. Here's somebody who's like devoted her life basically to finding a cure, who you could argue is like one of the more important people in terms of saving everything. And not only are you going to go out against her, but you're going to end her. That's when he says, right, you're always going to come after us, right? It's because she's made it her life mission to try to get this. It's out game and out show knowledge. So your interpretations are totally valid. When I saw the game in the show, I always assumed that she really was a cure, right? It will work. And because it was a huge controversy at the time, the game makers were asked about this a lot. They ended up saying that actually Ellie is the cure, right? It would probably work. I totally understand. Like, it's not maybe scientifically all plausible, but in a way, it's, it's a fictional world. So inside of that world, you can assume that the rules are a bit different. But I don't know. I think the powerful moment in the intro of this episode where Joel finally reveals that, you know, the reason he doesn't hear too well in one ear and has the scar is because he wasn't shot at. He tried to kill himself. And Ellie is like, oh, well, like, I guess time heals all wounds. And he looks at her and says, he wasn't time that did it. This shows that the whole protector thing, the whole episode three thing is like Joel has decided that she is the reason why he wants to live now. And the things that someone will do for that, for love, that's going to override a lot of the other things that you could argue from a remove, like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you should sacrifice her because more good will come out of it for humanity, right? If you assume that she's the cure, you should do this and that. But if you're in that subjective position, it's very hard to imagine that someone like Joel especially with the skills that he has, right? Because he can do it. He can kill all these people, right? Some people just would have no power to act in that situation, but he can. And the way they shoot it when he does, it's not an action sequence with like the big music and they remove most of the sound. It's like a fall from grace type of moment, right? He's moving methodically. Like you see the way his feet move and it's a kind of like killer training is kicking in and he's just doing it like blank faced and like no emotion. I like, you're in between me and my daughter, and I'm not going to lose my daughter again, and nothing else matters. I thought that was very, very powerful. Yeah, that line, it wasn't time that did it, was excellent. Just incredible script throughout, and that one closed it out well. And that scene was pretty intense, but also the way he was so methodical about it. Yeah, and the doctor grabs the scalpel, right? And it's like, bang, like, not even thinking about it. But the show also shows us that there's a cost to doing stuff like that, right? Because at the end, you can see the way Ellie asks him about it, like the relationship is damaged, it's broken. She broke her trust and there's going to be a cost to that. And I guess that's what we're going to explore more in season two. I haven't played or seen the second game. I know that its storyline is much longer than in the first game. I've heard, I'm not sure if it's official, but that they're going to split it in two seasons. So we may get two more seasons of the show. But I'm curious... Any final thoughts about the show as a whole, about this episode, any expectations for season two? Curious what you guys think. My view in general on seasons is like everything can be viewed in isolation. So whatever happens with season two will not impact season one to me. And I think it was incredibly well done. It made me really confident that maybe we're going to see some more unique ways of developing IP in the future and think about how much was added to this storyline. And I get frustrated with the entertainment world and what gets greenlit versus what doesn't get greenlit. And I understand, you know, from like just a pure capitalism financial standpoint, it's hard to come up with pure original stuff and then sell that. 
people want something to anchor to. If you can anchor to these, which were at one point original storylines and develop them in really awesome ways like this, like sign me up for that. And I'm a little bit fatigued by everything that's happening with superheroes. This would be a very nice transition if we hit a cycle where these are done effectively and done well. Going all the way back to the beginning, I'm happy to take Toe Jam and Earl and just run with that video game adaption. For the real ones who know that one, I'll sign up for that and then leave the rest of the good ones to you guys. There's a Tetris movie coming, or is it the TV show? <laughs> no, it's already out. It's on Apple TV. Oh, it's out. It looks good. The trailer made it look good. It's different. There's some entertainment value to it. So Matt, with your frustrations about like what gets greenlit and whatnot, and how to make sure creativity doesn't get voted out of the boardroom kind of thing, I think you'll really like the offer, what Liberty and I were talking about before we started. There's an aspect of that whole show that really explores how the boardroom and the executive decision can really crush creativity. And it kind of requires sort of an unexpected set of luck or characters to kind of make it happen. With regards to that last part of the last episode where he lies, that was so satisfying, particularly considering my earlier concerns about like, oh, it wasn't believable to me that like killing her would actually do any kind of net good. But then it's kind of made up by this ultra sticky human situation of like, oh, he's, he needs to lie because this girl is going to be destroyed for the rest of her life emotionally if he tells her the truth. So he's got to take that extra weight on him. It ends on an extra flavor of what this role of protector really means is to not just shoulder this practical burden of physically trying to protect someone, but like this emotional burden of I'm not going to let that weight be on you for the rest of your life. I'm just going to clap on another layer of ossification of my own soul and sacrifice that part of me so that you don't have to go through that kind of ordeal, which I really, really appreciated. But yeah, season two, Matt, I think I'm totally on board with you where it's like this thing can live in isolation in my mind. And if season two is like totally different characters and I'm not at all on board with what's going on, it doesn't really matter. I'm still going to appreciate this for what it was. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. There's only one set of final words that we can have right now. Endure and survive. Endure and survive, right? Survive the podcast. So that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the start. Bye, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Liberty. Thanks, gentlemen.